everyone, and welcome to The Darkest Hour. I'm your host, Amanda Jane. Pre-pandemic, I'd travel a lot for music, and every once in a while I'd get this urge to just stop at any random trail or park, forest, abandoned area, you name it. If it was spooky or nature, I wanted something to do with it. But then, I'd have to remember, it's not always a great idea to explore such secluded areas without having done some research first. And sometimes, that research turns up some rather unsettling things. Stories that would make you rather not when it comes to visiting something new. Curious, though. What if you don't research? Or maybe you research but decide to go anyway. I'm sure usually it's alright. Just fine. But what about those other times? The adventures that become misadventures. Well, those ones turn into stories, and those stories meant to be told. So, let's get started, shall we? I'm a 23-year-old woman from Canada. I won't give away exactly where I live, of course, but I'll try and describe the kind of area I live in. To start off, I'm self-employed and have to travel often to make a living. I've seen plenty of odd things, but this one still puts me on edge. When I was 21, I was traveling with my mom back home for an event called a powwow, where I sell crafted items that I make. If you're Aboriginal like me, then you know what I'm talking about. If not, then I highly recommend you look into them. To get home from the powwow, we have to go over a high mountain highway. This means that there's not very many towns, gas stations, or other forms of civilization. Not until you reach the other side. We were close to the top of the mountain. I wasn't driving, but I was listening to music as most people my age do. I wasn't tired or wired on coffee like I normally am, and I don't do drugs or drink if I'm at a powwow, so overall, pretty alert and awake. As I was looking into space, my eye caught onto something in front of us on the side of the road, behind a tall fence meant to keep deer and moose off the highway. It was a white object, which was odd and I honestly thought that someone must have lost a tarp off their truck or something. But as we were coming closer to it, I could see that it had legs, arms, and a head. I'm getting a bad chill up my spine just rethinking about it now. I felt my heart drop like a weight when I saw it raise its arms up to the top of the fence where its head would probably be about a foot or two above. So imagine how tall it would be compared to about a six-foot fence, maybe more, meant for deer. It raised its arms and placed its hands on top of the fence, peering over it as if it was trying to understand how to get to the other side. I think I actually stopped breathing for a moment as we went driving past it. I didn't dare look away from it. 
It took me maybe a moment to barely sputter to my mom to go faster. She didn't understand at first why I was suddenly freaking out and barely speaking English. She probably thought I was having a mental breakdown, which wouldn't be too far from the truth. She almost pulled over. When I felt her breaking and slowing down, I went into fight-or-flight mode, and I literally snapped back into reality, screaming at the top of my lungs, Don't slow down. Go. I probably continued to swear and nearly cry for another 15-20 minutes. As soon as we got to the next town, we stopped at the first gas station, where I had a panic and an asthma attack. I even realized I actually bruised my ear from ripping my headphones out of my ear so hard. Eventually, I told her why I screamed at her and why I'd freaked out so badly. It was tall, skinny, no hair far as I could see, unnaturally long arms and neck. It looked like it had small, dark eyes. I couldn't see if it had a mouth from that distance. It was probably shut. But imagine a naked, slender man with beady eyes. That's the closest way I can describe it. But Mom looked horrified from what I was describing to her. I'm not the kind of person to joke around with most things like that. I don't mess around with paranormal things as I've witnessed some stuff that would horrify most people. We ended up stopping at a friend's house to stay the night because we just couldn't drive the extra hour home after that. I didn't even sleep. I was too scared to, and I was worried that something would find me. All night, all I could do was think about a way to explain this to myself, like I was dreaming, or it was a tarp after all, or maybe I was just straight up going insane. The more I tried to think of a way to debunk it, the more I realized it was real. And that's horrifying. To think that something like that exists outside of video games and scary movies. Now I can't help but look down to the floor between my feet and break into a cold sweat whenever we pass that area. I won't even drive it myself. I don't know if it was a skinwalker, ghost, alien, but it felt like I saw something that wasn't meant to be seen. I still have the occasional nightmare from it. And I hate talking about it with my elders, friends, or family. Because to be honest, I think I have a bit of PTSD from this encounter. But how could I explain it to a professional? I'm open to some advice to help me get my fear under control. Or even a possible explanation on what that thing was. I think it could be helpful. My name's Alex. I'm 30 years old, and I've done a lot of stupid things for girls. But I'd never gone camping until last weekend when Sarah wanted to go. It seemed obvious that certain things would happen if I did, so I gave zero consideration to the fact that I hate being outside. At least it wasn't real camping. Sarah mainly wanted to hike the trails during the day, have s'mores in the evening, and sleep in the SUV. 
In this context, camping didn't seem so bad. She lives in a small town about 45 minutes away from mine, and the campgrounds are about 20 minutes further. So she's been going there her whole life. She didn't tell me the place was supposedly haunted until we were already on the way. But again, I didn't care. I don't believe in ghosts, and if she does, well, that could be its own kind of fun. I just don't think haunted is the right word for that place. When someone says haunted, I tend to think spirits of the dead, but this was... I don't know, but it was something else. The story wasn't even that scary. It's not like it was the site of some ancient battle or mass slaughter. It's not a serial killer's hunting grounds. It's just where a sick man took his family to die. I can't even remember his name. He was the town drunk back in the 70s, and everyone knew he beat his wife and kids, but no one was itching to do anything about it until he took them camping for a weekend, and they all ended up dead. Don't get me wrong, it's tragic and everything, but, I mean, that stuff happens, you know. And if ghosts were real, these definitely would have earned their haunting stripes. But they don't seem life-threatening. I mean, even if they were real, I still wouldn't be afraid of them. Not like I am now. It started off fine. We went on a hike, took pictures, stopped for lunch, and came back. There was just enough light left to get a fire started. I was about 15 to 20 yards into the woods when a pair of footsteps suddenly started walking towards me from the opposite direction. They only took a handful of steps, maybe five or six, but the trees, they were too dense to see more than a few feet ahead. They were unmistakably human, and it was only the one pair. They were moving slow, too almost like they were stalking something. I couldn't even be sure where they were coming from. The other campsites were too far away for someone to be wandering in between, and none of the hiking trails run through that area. I set my sticks on the ground, imagining what it would be like for some dark figure to suddenly emerge from the overgrown brush. My heart was racing, and the lump in my throat made the outcome seem most inevitable. I was frozen, waiting for it to happen. But then, the footsteps stopped dead in their tracks, and I called out a tentative, Hello? 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 The resulting silence stretched into eternity as I waited for a response that never came. Eventually, I wondered if I even heard them in the first place. But I did. I'm sure I did. You don't mistake that sound. I hurried back to camp and did my best to explain what happened. But Sarah thought I was trying to scare her. It was full dark by then and we needed flashlights to get the fire started. But I just wanted to get the hell out of there. Any good feelings I'd accumulated towards camping were quickly drowned out by the certainty of a crazed maniac watching us. We had s'mores, but I was jumpy the whole time, and Sarah was beginning to get annoyed until... the footsteps. They suddenly returned, just a few feet outside of camp. She didn't think I was being so silly then. 
It was too dark to see beyond our small perimeter, but the flashlight didn't reveal anything either. I just feel like I need to better describe these footsteps. They were so heavy, almost unnatural. It was like a really big man stomping around, but every few steps, he paused for a couple of seconds, only to return several yards ahead of where he stopped. Like he had the biggest stride in the world, or I don't know. I guess that's why I'm here. I wouldn't be writing this if I was sure of all that happened. When the flashlight didn't reveal any creepers lurking in the bushes, Sarah got excited and said it must be ghosts. Suddenly, her belief in the supernatural wasn't so cute anymore. It's hard to focus on that sort of thing when it feels like you're being hunted. After 20 minutes, the steps paused and never started back. Either a ghost had indeed vanished, or a serial killer was crouched in the bushes, just inside the tree line, waiting. It was stupid not to leave. If we were sleeping in a tent instead of a locked vehicle, I don't think anything could have made me stay. But Sarah had her heart set on it, and as promised, I do stupid shit for girls. By midnight, we were settled into the back of her SUV, and there had been no more disturbances. I'd almost forgotten about the footsteps entirely, but once she fell asleep, they were all I could think about. Then, I heard a muffled cry for help in the distance. I couldn't make out exactly what she said, but the general tone was desperate and terrified. Some things are easily conveyed without words. It made my blood run cold. And Sarah was still fast asleep. She didn't stir in the slightest. I debated getting the keys and taking off. But I was frozen in place by the sound of footsteps making their way towards the SUV. They were moving even slower than before as if trying to be stealthy, but they were just so heavy. I kept telling myself they were going to stop, but this time they didn't. Soon, they were right next to the vehicle, and I kept my eyes on the window, just waiting to see if the shape of a head would appear while gently shaking Sarah. I needed to wake her without making a sound, and I didn't want to do anything that might cause panic. There was no question of a ghost. This was real. It was happening. Someone had been watching us throughout the day, maybe even while we were hiking, and they were biding their time for this moment. I was positive, and I'd had far too much time to contemplate how moronic our deaths would be. Time slowed to a stop, and Sarah wasn't waking. The woman would have probably slept through her own murder. I feel like it's okay to make that joke since we made it out alive, but it's also not really a joke, so I don't know. That's beside the point. What little movements I had made came to a complete stop when the sound of metal on metal made my heart stop altogether. It sounded as if someone were walking along the SUV, dragging a knife down the side. 
Even that didn't wake Sarah. It took every ounce of self-control to hold in my scream, but I knew that doing so would only speed up the inevitable. Each second stretched into eternity as the sound made its way towards the passenger window, and I finally saw the shadow I desperately feared. It was even worse than imagined. It didn't even look human. Whatever it was, its head was taller than the window. I saw its wide, hunched shoulders, and the screeching sound of metal was interrupted when its hand transitioned to glass. And I saw it wasn't a knife. It was a long, stick-thin finger, ending in what I could only assume to be a razor-sharp claw. Bile rose into my throat as the stench of rotten eggs filled the air, and I noticed a long crack forming in the window. Its claw was actually cutting the glass. I realized that this thing would have no problem getting inside when it finished toying with us. Maybe it knew that I was awake. Maybe it was just enjoying the hunt like a cat. I don't know, and I don't want to know. I only know I didn't want to get slaughtered by the boogeyman. The creature turned the corner and paused at the back door, just standing there with one claw in the center of the hatch window. Then, slowly, its malformed, disproportionate body turned to face us, and its hand slowly dropped, claw tearing and screeching the whole way down. And I finally snapped. I leapt out of the sleeping bag, threw myself into the driver's seat, and thankfully, the keys were already in the ignition. The moment it cranked, something collided with the back, and Sarah finally woke up. I'm thankful I didn't see anything above the shoulders, and that I never looked in the rear view. But the second I hit the brights and punched the gas, Sarah screamed in a way that made my blood run colder than it had the whole time we were out there. She doesn't want to talk about it, and I feel bad because we both probably need to, but at the same time, I'm terrified of finding out. I was a teenager in the mid-90s. I was riding my bike home from volleyball practice one night, just as the sun was setting. It was freezing out, but I'm not yet old enough to drive, and both of my parents work at the hospital, so if I wanted to play sports, this is what I'd have to do every Monday through Thursday, after school. The back roads I took led past a stretch of bluffs looking over the Atlantic before a big hill led me into the neighborhoods. Riding on the sidewalk next to the fence, separating concrete and the grass of the bluffs, ahead of me I saw a large pickup truck parked halfway on the street and halfway up on the sidewalk. It had its back bed door down. Next to the truck, on the other side of the fence, I see a man dragging a zipped sleeping bag to the edge of the bluff. He then dropped the side he was pulling and went to the other end. 
I stopped my bike, and I watched as he struggled to lift that end up before dumping it over the cliffside, then watching its descent. This whole thing really freaked me out, so I started pedaling as fast as I could past the guy, hoping he wouldn't notice me. But he does, turning around right as my feet started cycling. He didn't move towards the truck, but he followed me with his eyes all the way past his truck until I was out of view down the hill. When I got home, I called the cops. They said they would send somebody down there to check it out. I gave a description of the guy and his truck and told them I didn't recognize their license plate, but I knew they weren't from Maine. Nothing ever came of it, though. For all I know, this guy could have been illegally dumping garbage into the ocean using a heavy sleeping bag. But the whole situation really freaked me out. I was homeless in Long Beach, California in 1980 at 16 years old because my mom was in federal prison and my dad lived in Texas. I was staying in cars and garages and one day I was hitchhiking from downtown to Belmont Shores and I was given a ride by a dude who was kind of strange but I wasn't worried. I was already a hard drug user and I'd been arrested for 25 pounds of marijuana in Huntington Beach, but that's another story. So I was picked up by this dude, and we drove down Ocean Boulevard, and he says to me, I have to make a short detour and pick up some volumes. I said okay. We turned onto Colorado Street and drove a few blocks up that street. He parked in front of a small apartment complex building, and he said, I'll be right back. I was waiting in the car, and he came from the apartment to the car. He said his cousin had locked the volumes in the safe, and that he'd paged him and was waiting for him to call with the combo. He asked if I wanted to come up and smoke a joint. I was like, okay, because I was a pothead. I followed him upstairs and entered the apartment. I sat down on the couch and immediately scanned the room for weapons because he was kind of strange. Long Beach is full of kind of strange people. I saw a pair of scissors and some other stuff scattered around the apartment. It was fairly clean and well kept. As I'm looking around, he reaches under the couch for what I thought was a weed tray. He says, Hey, you ever seen one of these? And as I look at what's in his hand, it's a pair of flex cuffs. And he says, Try them on and attacks me. He grabs my wrists and pulls out a can of mace, spraying me in the face. He's able to get a zip tie around my wrists, but I pulled one hand out as he tightened it. I jumped up, and as we were fighting, I got to the scissors. I grabbed the scissors, and he got me in a bear hug from behind. I stabbed him in the face as he was trying to pin my arms. I'm fighting for my life and I stabbed as hard as I could. His grip moved and pinned my arms, and he began choking me from behind. I was not able to breathe. 
I thought I was going to die. So I went limp, and I acted like I was done. He dropped me to the floor and dragged me to the bathroom by my arm. He opened the bathroom door and turned on the sink water and said, Wash your face. And he left me, standing there. I immediately jumped into the rim of the bathtub. And he stuck his arm in the door, holding a towel. I was going to jump out of the second-story window. When I saw his arm sticking through the door, I body-blocked the door, and he fell back. I jumped over him, and I ran out the front door. I got to the front door, and to my horror, I saw that it was a key lock on the inside. I grabbed the doorknob, and I turned it, and it opened. I ran outside and began beating on every upstairs door of the apartment complex. It was like 12 units, so I ran and I yelled, Police, police, call the police. I ran downstairs, and there were two guys tossing a football in the street. They must have tripped out because I was freaking out, and I had a zip tie around my wrist. They asked me what was going on. I told them what happened. I was explaining what happened and they cut the zip tie off and the weirdo tried to come out and leave. The guys helping me told the dude cops are on the way and that he isn't going anywhere. I heard the sirens and three police cars came with lights and sirens blazing. The police asked me what happened and I explained what happened. They went up to his apartment, came down, told me I had to go up to the apartment. I didn't want to go back in there. He told the police I tried to rob him and stabbed him in the face. He argued with the police that he wasn't gay. But as the police looked around, they found stuff that would show otherwise. Not to mention, they now had the zip tie that was cut off my wrist. They took me outside and explained because I was a juvenile, my parents would have to come to the station to press charges. They told me that if they arrested him, I would be coming also. I said I refused to press charges because I didn't want my parents involved. They left, and I went on my merry way. My mom got out of the feds, and I moved to Texas for five years. I came back. My mom and sister had bought a house almost directly across the street from the 12plex. My sister said she wanted to introduce me to her new husband and I almost had a heart attack. It was the dude tossing the football that day, and he said, where do I know you from? I was like, you remember the kid with the zip tie on his wrist? He was like, no fucking way. So this took place years ago when I was in primary school. I was maybe seven, eight, or nine at the time. I'd just gone to bed along with my mom because I had school in the morning. To explain my house quickly, my bedroom was next to the kitchen and the bathroom. There was an archway to my favorite room, the lounge room, or my room, because I was always there. My mom was always in the kitchen. There were two doors in the lounge. One was the entrance, and the other was to my mom's room, where she would sometimes hit the hay on Fridays because she was so tired from the week. 
My mom had gone to sleep in her room, but I was still active and full of energy, so little me decided to get my energy out by mucking around in the kitchen for a bit, but remaining quiet to not get caught by my mom. In the kitchen, there was an LED tube hanging up because of my fear of the dark, and this allowed me to see a lot despite it being in the kitchen, and it wasn't pitch black that night. I could clearly see into the lounge. I mucked around in the kitchen, chuckling to myself, and little me decided to do a spin. The world spun around me so fast, until I spotted something in the lounge room entrance through my blurred sight. I stopped, and I looked at the lounge. I saw a tall, thin, dark figure next to my mom's room. I thought it was my mom, and I felt like I'd been caught, and she was going to tell me to go to bed, but... It just stood there. I whispered, Mom? It stood there for a couple of seconds and then entered my mom's room, slowly. Curious little me followed suit when it was fully in my mom's room, and here's where things got a little freaky for me. My mom was in her bed, snoring. And I knew at that age, if mom was snoring, she was fast asleep. In my mind, I went, if mom's fast asleep, who was in the lounge and entered her room? I then decided to go back to bed, and I fell asleep with that figure on my mind. I never told my mom about this until I was in high school, and all she said was, huh, weird. Although it's rare, when I spin around fast, I see something black retreat behind a wall when no one was even there. This only started happening when I saw that figure. Was it my mind playing tricks on me? It didn't seem like the case at all. Sometimes I think I saw the shadow of an entity or a deceased person that entered my home for who knows what. Or it could have been something else, like the devil, as 12-year-old me thought. It remains a mystery. But I'll never forget that long, thin, eyeless figure who lurked into my mom's room, even though it was spotted by a child. In 1965... My grandfather was the sheriff of a small mining town that I'd rather not say by name, Middle America. Legend has it, he, one of his deputies, and another detective were walking on the railroad tracks leading into town. They were investigating an apparent suicide that allegedly had taken place earlier that day. A transient had recently ran into a nearby shop to use the phone and report what he'd found. My grandfather had to leave Thanksgiving dinner to meet the detective at the railway. My grandma packed him a lunch full of Thanksgiving food before he said goodbye to my dad and the rest of the visiting relatives. Just after dusk, he'd reach the train station and be joined by the two men. The detective introduces himself as a member of the FBI. His name was James Montgomery. My grandfather asks why they're working a suicide this far out in their county, but his question was quickly dismissed, as James had questions of his own, 
all of them relating to the body. But neither my grandfather nor his deputy had been to the scene yet, so they all set off onto the tracks looking for the body. It's not long before they come across their first sign of death, the man's head, presumably the furthest because it's rolled. They all stop to look at it. Back in those days, forensics wasn't what it is today. So they poked it around with a stick to turn it over, revealing the face of the unfortunate victim. But it looked like he'd been mauled. His nose had been torn off, and one of his cheeks partially separated from the jaw, broken in half right up the middle. The top of his head revealed more marks that seemed unusual from a suicide by train. The top of his skull was crushed straight down in a thick line of three or four individual teeth marks. James writes a couple of notes and directs everyone to keep going. Soon, they'd find an arm torn from the shoulder, a forearm crushed from a binding force, the deputy happens to shine his light by a tree, its base smeared with blood, a red trail up the tree into the branches. Following the trail up, they find what's left of the victim, laid in the branches above. Without warning, the deputy drops his flashlight and runs into the tree line, into the darkness, with a glazed look in his eyes. My grandfather yells his name, but it doesn't stop his pace. James tells my father to shut up, and as soon as he does, my grandfather knew why James had silenced him. Immediately, he can hear a low whistle. Focusing on the sound, its frequencies nauseating. Looking for the source, he points his flashlight even further up the bloody tree. From a higher branch... Both James and my grandfather witness a large, dark creature standing above them, looking down. James pulls out some sort of tranquilizer gun and begins to fire rounds into the looming figure above. It lets out a scream and begins to leap through the trees, away from the train tracks. Speechless and in disbelief, my grandfather begins to pursue the monster, but James stops him. Then, James puts two rounds of tranquilizers into my grandfather's chest, leaving him to wake up near the tree line early the next morning. The body in the trees was gone, and he never saw James again. A search party would find the deputy, confused and lethargic, huddled and oblivious as to how he got there. The last thing he remembered was finding the arm. For months after, both he and my grandfather were monitored and spied on by unmarked white vans, wiretaps, and the occasional home visit from an FBI agent, always asking if there's been any headway on the suicide. The correct answer being that the case was closed already, no need to investigate it further. The deputy and my grandfather knew what they'd be risking if they'd chosen to press the issue. They played by the FBI's rules, and they never spoke a word outside of their immediate family. 
My grandfather retired in 1971. He and my grandmother would live out the rest of their lives in that small mining town. He attributes his harmonious later years to the choices he's made through the younger, and he doesn't regret his choice. Don't mess with the FBI, and don't walk the train tracks at night. Simple enough. Well, friends, it appears we've reached the end of tonight's episode. But don't miss a brand new one every Friday night. Don't forget to like this video, subscribe to The Darkest Hour, and tap the bell so you never miss a thing. Like my other weekly uploads, every Sunday and Wednesday. I sure do appreciate all the support, and I can't thank you enough. I want to thank those who shared their stories, and a big thanks to all of you for listening. You can keep up with me and all things Darkest Hour over on my Instagram at the Darkest Hour YT, and follow me on Twitter at Amanda Jane TDH. Do you have stories like these? I'd love to share them. Send them to me, Amanda Darkest Hour at gmail.com or on the Darkest Hour subreddit, the Darkest Hour YT. A huge shout out to all of my patrons, whom I appreciate so much. Tracy S., Monica L., Zoe Watt, Shelly B., Donald C., Rat Girl, Alicia S., Aaron G., Nikki H., Mr. Revenant, and Naz K. If you want to support The Darkest Hour in other ways, consider joining my Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash thedarkesthour, or... Click the link in the description to learn more. And stay spooky. Thank you.